0: My guest today is author and historian of ancient science and human curiosity, Adrian Mayer. Adrian Mayer is a research scholar at Stanford University who investigates natural knowledge contained in pre scientific myths and traditions. Her latest book, Gods and Robots Myths, Machines, and Ancient Dreams of Technology, investigates how the Greeks imagined. Robots, Artificial Life, and Artificial Intelligence in Myths and Ancient Stories. Uh, Adrian Mayer is with me on the phone line. Uh, Adrian, thank you very much uh, for taking my call and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you very much. Uh, Adrian, before we discuss the research uh, that uh, you present in your latest book, uh, Gods and Robots, Uh, Myths, Machines, and Ancient Dreams of Technology. Uh, Please uh, tell us about yourself. Uh, Tell us about your education and about your research. How did you get here, where you are now?
1: Well, uh, you could uh, say that I'm a... um a historian of human curiosity. I'm a research scholar in the Classics Department and the History and Philosophy of Science program at Stanford. And I'm this year I am a Berggruen fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. And I, in my work, investigate historical and scientific realities, um, nuggets of truth, germs of truth, uh, that appear in mythology, legends, and ancient literature and art from pre-modern societies, and I focus on ancient Greece and Rome, and I believe that there are perceptive insights embedded in mythology. What I'm seeking is evidence for the first inklings of the scientific impulse in ancient and pre-modern cultures.
0: You describe yourself as a historian of ancient science and human curiosity. Now, we understand the term historian of ancient science. However, can you describe the term historian of human curiosity?
1: Well, you know, I, um, I'm also a, a folklorist, a classical folklorist, um, and I believe that mythology and folklore, especially about nature um it can probably contains some real genuine nuggets of folk knowledge based on observation careful observation and um, observation and speculation about puzzling um, evidence uh, in antiquity I think that ancient people um, when they came across something that was uh, um, Inex- seemed inexplicable or mysterious in nature, they tried their best to come up with some sort of rational explanation. Um, but the, the explanations were often embedded in myth, and they're, they're couched in mythological terms. So I believe that um, that genuine knowledge based on observation and rational thinking has been overlooked because, because it's um, often expressed in mythological terms.
0: Uh, In your book, Gods and Robots, uh, you present uh, a detailed analysis of popular myths. Uh, Let us uh, look at some of these myths uh, one by one uh, in detail. Uh, So let us talk about this ancient robot uh, that roamed the island of Crete uh, to protect the island uh, from invaders.
1: This was a bronze automaton. Um, You could actually call it a robot because it was uh, imagined as self-moving and able to um, sense its surroundings in some way and then was, you could say, even programmed to uh, spot invaders of the island of Crete. This robot was made by the god of invention and technology, the blacksmith god Hephaestus. And... It was made uh, to defend the island of Crete, the kingdom of King Minos, in the myth. Oh, the myth is very ancient. It goes back to uh, about 750 to 650 B.C., and we have a lot of details about this bronze robot. He was uh, a giant man, as I say, made of bronze, and he. we even know his inner workings, which is amazing for a, a myth about a robot— that is so ancient. Um, He had a single tube or artery that went from his head to his toe, um, and in this artery uh, pulsed not blood, but ichor. Ichor is the life force of the gods in Greek mythology. It's what made the gods immortal. So this was a Giant bronze man, self-moving, was able to march around the island of Crete, um, pick up boulders and hurl them at uh, approaching ships. And we hear about this robot in the epic poem of the Argonautica, the story of Jason and the Argonauts on their quest for quest for the golden Fleece.
0: And then there is a clash between the robot. Uh, and uh, Jason and Argonaut uh, as it is told uh, in the story?
1: Yes, well the robot as I say was was tasked with defending the island of Crete from any approaching ships. So when Jason and the Argonauts sailed their ship the Argo Uh, into a small harbor on Crete, expecting to rest uh, after their labors, Um, they encountered Talos, who tried to hurl boulders at their ship. He did not sink the ship, but Talos also had another uh, capability in close combat. In close combat, he could heat his body, he's made of bronze, remember, he could heat his body red hot and then grab up a victim, hug them to his chest, and roast them alive. So this was quite a daunting thing for Jason and the Argonauts. Luckily, they had, along with them, Medea. She's the famous witch of Greek mythology, and she was kind of a techno-expert. Medea figured out how to destroy Talos she knew that he, she knew that he had that single artery and the entire uh, vivi system if you will was sealed by a bronze rivet or nail or bolt on Talos' ankle that's what sealed his entire workings interior workings and that was his weak point so Medea actually uh, she figured out she was able to, guess that this robot, even though he was made of bronze, might have some human-like features. And sure enough, she was able to convince him that she could make him immortal. He actually wished to be immortal like any human being, sort of a human feature of him. But she said, I can do that for you. But only if you allow me to remove the bolt in your ankle. And Talos agreed. We have ancient vase paintings that show Jason and Medea using a tool to remove that bolt on the bronze robot's ankle. And the myth says that his life force, the ichor, flowed out like molten lead, and he toppled over, collapsed, and that was the end of Talos.
0: Well, it is uh, uh, very interesting uh, that uh, one of the skill that Medea had uh, was to control uh, mind and thoughts uh, of others. Uh, and the story seems to suggest that Medea used uh, this skill uh, in this clash. The question is that robot is a machine. Uh, how can you use this skill of controlling thoughts? To engage with a machine, uh, does the story suggest that uh, the robot had uh, some human-like thinking uh, abilities?
1: That's a very interesting point. Uh, what, you, what you're what you saying is that Medea suspected that even though this was a, a, a kind of machine made by, made of metal... She intuited that he might have some human characteristics, and so this means that the, in the in the ancient Greek times, people imagined Talos as a kind of mythological version of a cyborg, a sort of hybrid of machine and human um, it 's a very interesting uh, interesting thing, and it 's something that psychologists today try to figure out why. Do human beings tend to anthropomorphize uh, robots and AI? Why do we why do we do that? And it it seems that we are hardwired to bestow a kind of life, or imagine that um, something that behaves like it's alive um, might have emotions, and that uh, that impulse goes all the way back to this ancient myth where Medea figured out that uh, that Talos might actually desire to be invulnerable and did not want to die.
0: When we investigate uh, the origin uh, of this particular myth, uh, is the origin of this myth uh, uh, a single text, uh, a poem, uh, as you suggested few moments ago? Or does this myth also appear uh, in other ancient writings?
1: the myth of talos the bronze man uh, who defended crete for king minos the the very earliest source that we have is the poet hesiod from his uh writings in about 700 bc he was writing around the same time as as homer um and hesiod describes uh talos and then we uh, remember that homer and hesiod although they're first writing things down in Uh, the period 750 to 650 B.C., they're the first to write it down. What they're writing down are oral traditions and myths, and we have no idea when those actually arose. So people might have been circulating these stories much earlier before Hesiod and Homer wrote them down. So we don't know really how early this myth arose. But then there there are other ancient sources that talk about Talos. Um, he's uh, he's mentioned by several ancient sources that come after Homer and Hesiod. Uh, and there are many different versions of the story. And there were even uh, some playwrights um, from classical Athens wrote plays featuring Talos, but unfortunately the plays are lost. All we have are just scraps or fragments of some lines from the plays. But we can imagine that um, that they also tended to humanize this bronze man and the audience uh, probably felt pity for the, for the bronze robot since after all he was tricked by Medea when he was just going about his business doing his job. Uh,
0: let us move on to our next uh, myth. Uh, the story of a mechanical bird uh, uh, that perhaps uh, used steam to power its flight? And you know, even before
1: the first uh, automaton that was a flying bird was made by Archytas, a friend of, uh, of Plato, in the fourth century BC, we we already have a myth about a mechanical or at least bronze bird, an eagle, Zeus's eagle that was forged by Hephaestus. Um, in the Argonautica, Apollonius of Rhodes describes how Jason and the Argonauts viewed this giant eagle coming like clockwork each day at the same time each day to peck out the liver of Prometheus who had been uh, chained to a mountain. And Hephaestus had created this eagle to come and torture uh, the Titan because he stole fire and gave it to the humans. So in in the in the epic poem about Jason and the Argonauts, we have a description of this giant eagle moving like a machine. They say that it caused a whirring sound and that the feathers of the wings moved like a bank of polished oars. So we get a sort of mechanistic description of a forged um, bronze eagle long before the technology made it possible. Now, Archytas, who was a friend of Plato, uh, he was a, um, a brilliant uh, inventor and also a political leader in the colony of Tarentum in Italy. And he created this automaton of a flying bird that could fly, I would say, a few feet, and then it had to be reset each time. So modern engineers assumed that it was powered by steam somehow. And there are uh, models of it in the um, Museum of Greek Science in Athens, um, showing how it would have worked.
0: Uh, Well, this discussion of uh, mechanical bird uh, leads us to my next uh, question. And the next question is about uh, human flight. Uh, Human flight was imagined thousands of years ago in Greek stories, and uh, this one story that you reiterate uh, in your book is about a father and his son who flew out of a prison. Uh, Talk to us about uh, this story.
1: That's right. The legendary, brilliant inventor Daedalus, uh, he's most famous for his... um, creation of a pair of wings for himself and for his son Icarus they were uh, imprisoned in the labyrinth that uh, Daedalus had built for King Minos once again uh, of Crete and they were imprisoned there um, and Daedalus was dreaming about how he could possibly escape with his son and he hit upon the idea of trying to borrow the natural powers of birds and and create some wings so that they could actually fly away and escape and the myth tells us that he made the made the wings uh, by gathering actual feathers from birds and then placing them very carefully the way in the same formation that birds wings are made and then um, using glue or wax uh, to hold them together. And then he and his son strapped these wings on, and Daedalus warned his son Icarus, young, young boy, do not fly too close to the sun, because the heat will melt the wax, and uh, the wings will fall apart. And um, as they flew away, Icarus, the young boy, was so enraptured by the experience of flight that he did fly too high and of course the Sun melted the wax and he plunged to his death into the ocean and Daedalus uh, stopped to mourn him and bury him and then flew on and we hear in the myth that he flew all the way to Sicily where he continued his fabulous inventions so he actually did succeed with his plan in the myth uh, although at great cost
0: uh, these uh, stories then led to the development of uh, various mechanical devices. Uh, for instance, uh, a mechanical stage where various characters and items on the stage uh, were controlled uh, through strings and pulleys?
1: That's right. That uh, A self-moving uh, theater uh, to, sh- to um, produce a um, play based on... Uh, a myth of Troy, was built by a uh, hero of Alexandria. He was a, a real inventor, a very brilliant uh, engineer who created many self-moving devices, and one of them was this theater. It's a, it was a small theater that was just started by the operator by pulling on a string, which then caused a series of mechanisms to uh, produce the play so that figures would appear. There were even sounds. Um, uh, the scene, I think, opened with shipbuilders making ships, and you could hear the sound of hammering. And then um, the ships sail off over moving waves with leaping dolphins. And these are all mechanized um with no one actually operating it once it gets started. So it was quite a wonderful spectacle for people. Um, This was in about the, um, I guess, about the 3rd century B.C. So uh, this is quite early. And and once again, uh, there have been recreations of this fantastic little uh, self-moving theater, and you can see them working if you go to Athens and go to the Museum of of Greek uh, Science.
0: And then uh, there is uh, a story. Uh, Of a self-driving four-wheel cart uh, that you would bring on the stage. Uh, Inside uh, the cart uh, was a tube uh, and inside the tube there was a weight and as this weight would fall uh, due to gravity the pulleys attached to this weight would move the cart uh, and uh, to the audience it would look like a self-driving four-wheel cart.
1: Exactly. And what's really interesting is that uh, um, self-driving carts were imagined in Greek mythology as early as the time of Homer. In Homer's Iliad, he describes the marvelous inventions of Hephaestus, the god of uh, blacksmithing and technology. And Homer tells us that, um, that Hephaestus had created a a fleet of driverless carts on wheels that could deliver without any any without any action by him without him operating them they were self-driving carts that could deliver ambrosia and nectar to the gods and goddesses at their banquets and then return when they were empty so these are the first uh, imagined driverless carts and You know, it's often said that where science fiction leads, technology follows. Well, these ancient myths are are the first science fiction stories. And sure enough, as you say, someone later, uh, during the Hellenistic period in Alexandria, uh, Egypt, which was uh, the center of automatons and self-moving devices, mechanical marvels, someone did build uh, a cart that could move on its own. actually making making the ancient myth come true.
0: And as we move closer to this day and age, uh, we hear stories uh, about a floating mechanical orchestra and we hear stories about uh, a mechanical man, a mechanical knight uh, as envisaged by Leonardo da Vinci.
1: Yes, what's very interesting is that, as I mentioned, Alexandria, Egypt, became uh, just the hub or center of, of um, mechanical inventions uh, beginning in uh, in the 4th and 3rd century B.C. when they had that fabulous library and museum in Alexandria. And engineers and inventors flocked to that city to create a profusion of of actual mechanical devices and marvels and animated statues, and some of them were quite monumental. And many of those plans would have been lost, except that uh, the plans and designs that that were made in Alexandria would have been lost were it not for Arabic and Islamic um, scholars who preserved them, preserved the plans and enhanced them, uh, them and improved upon them. And that's how these designs made their way finally to Byzantium and then to Europe in the Middle Ages. So uh, it's, it is a continuous line. It's very interesting.
0: How would you relate these ancient myths? Uh, With uh, today's stories, such as Metropolis, uh, uh, Terminator, uh, and and, and perhaps uh, with uh, 1984?
1: Well, you know, uh, what people worry about these days with AI and robotics, uh, the way they phrase it is to say that um, technology seems to favor totalitarianism. And as as I've just described, there were killer robots even in antiquity. So um, there, there once again, is a continuous line. I wondered how how deep are the roots of an association between tyranny and technology. And if you go back to the ancient myths that I've just been describing, who was it that uh, commissioned Talos? It was Zeus who was... The father of gods and men, and he was visualized in ancient Greek mythology as a harsh, vindictive tyrant. And he's the one who commissioned and um, demanded that uh, Hephaestus create this killer robot, Talos. So I also found that also in antiquity, in real historical times, it was autocrats and tyrants who often commissioned. Uh, machines of malice, machines that were used to torture and kill their own citizens. So the roots of that uh, connection that people worry about now, uh, the connection between tyranny and technology, that too has a very ancient uh, past.
0: A number of researchers in the field of artificial intelligence uh, warn us that we must think about the ethics of artificial intelligence and we must be careful that uh, who will control this technology and how it will be used and that it should not be used uh, to harm uh, humans. Uh, It seems that we can find uh, parallels here Uh, in ancient myths and stories. uh, We note that uh, uh, these imaginary machines uh in the past were created to harm others
1: yes that, that i think that's quite um amazing and yet um intuitively correct that that uh tyrants would be attracted to um uh, using automatons because it it not only shows their power and displays their power but also uh, as we see today, who will be responsible for automatons if they are self-moving? That's one of the uh, big ethical problems today with AI and robotics. If they uh, if they can kill or assassinate or carry out combat, who is responsible for them when they do evil things? Is it the maker? Is it the one who designed it, the one who commissioned? Or is it... Uh, would we only blame the robot itself or the AI? That's an ethical problem that we have not we have not been able to figure out yet. People are working on it now. There are some experts, uh, like Patrick Lynn and Joanna Bryson, um, who are philosophers who work on ethics of AI and robotics and they uh they point out these moral problems that are um, beginning to surround the whole enterprise of AI and the advancements are outstripping our ability to make laws or figure out the ethics of them. They point out that uh, the responsibility must lie with the makers and the and those who commission them, not with the with the robots themselves or the AI. We need to think of them as tools that we are responsible for.
0: We have discussed a number of myths and we have discussed a number of imaginary machines uh, that you mention in your book, Gods and Robots, Myths, Machines, and Ancient Dreams of Technology. However, in the book, you discuss a number of real machines uh, as well. Uh, these were not mythical machines. These were actual developments. Can you discuss some of these uh, actual developments, real machines, for our listeners?
1: Yes, well, there was a, um, an interesting uh, robot made by the king of Sparta, Nabis, Uh, in the third century BC. He was a very harsh dictator um, whose reign was long remembered for the number of um, citizens that he uh, blackmailed and extorted um, and then uh, actually killed. And he carried this out partly with a robot made in uh, in the form of his wife, Apega, Queen Apega. He created a A robot dressed it in her clothing, and perhaps it even had a wax, painted wax cast of her face. And he would ply citizens with wine and then demand that they turn over their property to him. And when they refused, he would say, Perhaps my queen will be more persuasive, and he would lead the now inebriated uh, guest to meet Queen Apega. It was the robot. She was seated on a throne, and the guest would hold out his hand to take hers, and that would cause her immediately to stand up. Now Nabus went behind the robot, and with levers and pulleys, he he used a his skill to cause her arms to grip the person, the victim, and slowly uh, um, intensify her grip. And her clothing hid the fact that her entire body was studded with nails. And this was a a very sophisticated torture device in the 3rd century B.C., Um, There have been some uh, recreations of how that robot worked. Uh, It's quite sophisticated. But by that time, as I mentioned, uh, many um, inventors were creating such things and sometimes they were commissioned by uh, dictators and very harsh uh, tyrants.
0: Our engineers uh, and scientists uh, use computers to design future machinery uh, these days. Uh, They can use computer graphics to create designs. Uh, They can use computers to create and run simulations. They can create prototypes. However, this is amazing that uh, in these myths and in these ancient writings, thousands of years ago, how humans imagined these robots, these machines, uh, these uh, mechanical devices. So, can we say that, uh, in terms of imagination, the Greeks got there first? Um,
1: I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, claim that the Greeks were the only ones to imagine such things, because we do have evidence from uh, Hindu and Sanskrit texts that show that uh, there were also. Um, uh, imaginings of self-moving devices and uh, driverless uh, vehicles that were driven by thought uh, in other ancient cultures. But we, we have the benefit of a large body of texts and art from Greek and Roman times. Um, I did actually ask myself who first imagined robots um, and artificial intelligence and Uh, self-moving devices Um, and I wondered if it if it was possible that that the ideas and the concepts uh, could have been imagined long before technology made them possible and I found a lot of evidence in ancient Greek mythology and uh, also in historical times but I believe that that the Greeks were probably not unique in this I think I think the impulse to uh, extend uh, just to let the imagination soar and carry out these thought experiments of what kind of technology would gods be capable of if they had uh, the benefit of um, uh, a divine brilliance and ingenuity and technology? What could they come up with? And so I think it was probably uh, an ancient and universal impulse. It's just that we have a lot of uh, a lot of evidence from ancient Greece.
0: Uh, Adrian, uh, when you conducted this research, uh, you noticed uh, these mythical robots, ancient mechanical birds, wings to enable human flight, and you can relate uh, these uh, items uh, to the developments that is happening uh, around us now. Have you come across entities, items, artifacts in these myths that were imagined thousands of years ago but are not being developed or perhaps we are not focusing on those uh, or perhaps our imagination has not arrived uh, there yet
1: <laughs> that's an interesting question i don't really have an answer to that one that's very interesting i will have to think about that more um what sort of things did they imagine that we haven't uh, that we haven't realized yet? I, I suppose part of one of the things that they imagined was uh, uh, borrowing the powers uh, of animals and gods. Um, in, for instance, in the story of Daedalus and Icarus, but also um, the quest for immortality and lo- or longevity. Um, we haven't realized that yet, but it's a very ancient impulse and desire. And there were many myths um, surrounding the figure of Medea, who was said to be able to uh, extend the li- natural lifespan of, of people and rejuvenate uh, older people and even um, promise immortality. Uh, there are lots of myths about that, that human desire, and, if, and people still have that desire today. There are people who are working toward that, but they certainly haven't realized it yet.
0: I suppose it is important that I highlight that a number of publications that I have come across on these topics, on these ancient myths, are usually written in a manner that is not very lively, that is hard to follow. I find your process of describing these myths and stories fascinating uh you try to find a storyline and you try to build a story that captures uh reader's imagination uh, uh, can you describe the process that you follow to conduct research on a particular myth and then to present it in a publication
1: oh uh, well i well thank you That's uh that's quite a compliment i i think that uh, to be true to these myths, which were, after all, thought experiments, and actually I think of them as uh, as cultural dreams, sort of in the same way that our our uh, science fiction stories and movies are cultural dreams, and so I, I I pay a lot of attention to the narrative arc of each of these myths and of course so much is lost sometimes we don't have the entire myth sometimes all we have are are fragments in many different sources and i do try to gather those and and try to imagine what the what the full myth might have said given what we have um with the myth of of talus and pandora for instance we have we have quite a bit and so uh I feel that it's uh, to be true to the myth, you should tell the whole story, and also mention all of the various versions that might have circulated about this. About this, uh, these figures, there were many, many different versions and alternative um, uh, retellings of these of these stories, which shows just how popular they must have been. And so many vase paintings illustrated them as well, and we know there were even public uh, wall paintings of the story of of Talos and Jason and the Argonauts and Pandora, for instance. And those are lost now, but we we do have uh, a lot of vase paintings. Even so, we have thousands of vase paintings that survive today, but I have have been told by art specialists who tell me that uh, what we have represents only about 1% of the vase paintings that once existed, so as you see, so much is missing. So I think uh, I think it's important to tell as much of the story as we can using ancient literature and art.
0: And now that you are with me on the phone, uh, why don't we uh, briefly touch upon uh, some of your other books? Uh, your book, *The Poison King*, was shortlisted for the National Book Award.
1: Um, My book, uh, The Poison King, uh, which came out in uh, 2009, The Poison King, The Life and Legend of Mithridates, Rome's Deadliest Enemy, was uh, one of the five um, finalists for the National Book Award.
0: And and this book uh, was about?
1: This book was about um, Mithridates, who was a uh... king uh... during the time uh... of the end of the roman republic um, the roman republic uh... attempted to defeat him uh... they never were able to catch up with him they never uh... really defeated him after after forty years of war the great mithridatic wars first mithridatic war the second mithridatic war and the third mithridatic war and he escaped their clutches every time he was also renowned as the world's first experimental toxicologist. So he experimented with um, all known poisons and venoms and toxins and attempted to make himself immune to all poisons by concocting a universal antidote, which apparently had more than 50 ingredients, tiny, tiny amounts of poisons and venoms, And their antidotes mixed together. And he took this faithfully every day of his life. And in fact, he lived um, well into his 70s when everyone around him was dying at about 45. So, who knows, maybe it worked.
0: Uh, In your book, Fossil Legends uh, of the First Americans, you discuss that Native Americans uh, were the first to notice fossils of huge animals uh, in that uh, region uh, and you discuss the questions that what did they make of uh, these fossils how did they try to explain uh, these fossils and what did they speculate
1: that's right in fossil legends of the first americans um i uh I, w- I was very interested in the fact that well before Columbus arrived in the New World, Native Americans uh, in the Americas in, in the in the uh, Western Hemisphere had observed uh, the mysterious petrified remains of extinct creatures, and they attempted to understand how they turned to stone and why uh, why they disappeared and what their life was like when they were alive. So these were perceptive. Uh, oral traditions in which Native Americans visualized the remains of extinct mammoths, um, dinosaurs, pterosaurs, and and, uh, marine creatures, and they um, imagined them as monsters and giants and thunderbirds and water monsters. They had many accurate insights and perceptions, and some were so sophisticated that they actually antedate Um, uh, and anticipate some modern scientific theories. And these were all passed down in oral histories over many centuries. So I drew on historical sources and archaeology and um, interviewed a lot of elders and storytellers on reservations um, with personal interviews. Um, I began with Aztec and Inca fossil tales that were collected by the Spanish conquistadors uh, right up to... um, uh present day storytellers who remembered some of those old myths so that was that uh the research for that book was uh quite absorbing i I really never wanted to stop doing the research it was so amazing
0: my last question is do you think uh, there is more that we can learn from our past from these ancient myths from these ancient stories. Uh, When you study these ancient myths and the civilizations where these myths emerged, do you think that uh, history repeats itself? Do you think that there are lessons that we can learn uh, from our past that might help us to make a better future for ourselves? Well, you know, it
1: seems I... Ironic, I suppose, to be looking back to the distant past. Uh, everyone everyone around me um, at my university and where I am a fellow uh, this year, uh, everyone is looking forward, trying to look to the future. And I seem to be the only one looking back to millennia <laughs> to study what are essentially some of the first ever science fiction stories. As I say, thought experiments, uh, they really seem to show um, that the, that people could in a very sophisticated way, imagine uh, advanced technology long before uh, it, it became a reality. And I think um, these ancient dreams of technology, uh, what I hoped was that by gathering these, I show how relevant they still are. They're still fresh for us today. People were still grappling with whether or not these things would be good or evil, Um And I think, uh, I was hoping that it would be a kind of mythology for the age of artificial intelligence. I was thinking that these ancient myths, uh, science fiction tales and and their messages over the millennia might enrich our understanding of what I think is a timeless link between imagination and science.
0: Adrian Mayer, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show.
1: Well, thank you so much. Oh, your questions were wonderful. This has been quite enjoyable.
0: Thank you and goodbye.
1: Goodbye.